really good to be with you all in the house today. As you can see, we are having a different service this morning. And I'm very excited to let you know that there are 29 people who are going to be water baptized this morning. This is a significant moment for our church and really a special moment uh, for these people that are going through the waters of baptism. I want to encourage you to really, I want to ask you to really encourage these people, right, because this is not just some formality or ritual. This is not a pool party, right? This is a public confession of their faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and the Lord doesn't take this type of commitment and obedience lightly. And church, we are really privileged to be a part of this special moment. Amen? But church, before we get there, this morning we continue with our series, Revealing Jesus, and we find ourselves again in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. We continue our study on the church at Philadelphia today, the second last of the seven churches. And if you would recall, last week we spent most of our time looking at the historical re uh, relevance of the church age represented by the church at Philadelphia. If we have another look at the timeline of church history together, we discussed last time how this was a period in church history that began in and around 1750 and in which there has basically been four great awakenings to date, right? And as I said last time, we are due for another great awakening. The Church of Philadelphia became labeled as the missional or evangelistic church because of its global influence in the gospel and because millions of people have been saved during this time period of the church. As we read last time, this is a church that Jesus only says good things about in this specific letter. And today we are going to start by going verse by verse and really getting into the detail and unpack what that meant for the church back in the first century and what it means for the church today. Remember, as we go through the study of these churches, it is our heart's desire to be a church that Jesus commends and blesses. Amen. Not a perfect church, but a church that is faithful, a church that is, that is obedient and diligent to its calling. Amen. And that's the type, the type of church that we want to be. That's the type of, type of believers that we want to be. So when we look at the church at Philadelphia, we firstly need to be reminded that it was a literal church that existed in the first century AD. If we have a look at the next image... This is the presumed route by which John's letters were circulated among the churches known back then as Asia Minor, but known today as Turkey. And as you can see, that line starts in a little island called Patmos and then moves in a clockwise direction from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum, or Pergamos as it's known, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and then Philadelphia, where we find ourselves today. And finally, to the church at Laodicea. We're almost coming to the end of the church age. Now, Philadelphia was a city that was built by and named after a king of Pergamos. 
His name was Attalus Philadelphus, who died in 138 BC. And not that much is known about the biblical city of Philadelphia. Besides what we, we glean from this letter, there's no other mention of this city or this church anywhere else in the Bible outside of the book of Revelation. It also, like Sardis, was rocked and devastated several times by earthquakes and almost completely destroyed by the same one in 17 AD. It was situated on the lowest slopes of Mount Tomolus, which are volcanic hills, and as a result of the volcanic activity that predated Philadelphia, the soil in that region was very rich. It was very fertile, and grapes were one of the principal crops in Philadelphia. And as a result, it became the reason for Philadelphia's worship of Dionysus, which was the god of wine and revelry. There was always an annual feast that involved a lot of drinking and debauchery, but I will speak a bit more about that later on in the sermon. Right? So they were living in this type of city that was worshiping this type of God, but even against this backdrop, a Christian church was thriving. And you know what the name Philadelphia means? It's the two Greek words, philos and adelphos, and it means brotherly love. It means brotherly love. It also means love for fellow believers or brotherly kindness, a special kind of love. But what type of love are we talking about here? If you've been in church long enough, you, most of us know that in the Greek there are actually four different words for love, right? You have agape love, which is the love that God has for us, right? You have eros love, which is erotic sexual love. There's also storge love, which is the type of love that you have for your mother, your father, or for your children, or someone that is closely related to you. But phileia love is brotherly love. One of the actual definitions of phileia love says that phileia is the most general form of love in the Bible, encompassing love for fellow humans, care, Respect, kindness, benevolence, and compassion for people in need. It's a very powerful and strong brotherly love that will cause you to put others above yourself. So the church at Philadelphia is really represented by its name. Why? Because they loved the brethren. They loved the brethren. They loved their brothers and sisters. Now, church, just a quick question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how important do you think it is to have this type of love? Where would you rate the importance of this type of love in your Christian walk? At about a 3, at a 5, an 8? Where do you think Jesus would rate this type of love? In John chapter 15, verses 12 to 17, these are the last words of Jesus to his disciples before he went to the cross. He says to them, this is my commandment, love each other. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me, 
You didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command, love each other. Church, three times in this passage, Jesus speaks about love and commands his followers to love each other. And you know, oftentimes we overlook the importance of what Jesus commands us to do when he speaks about this in, in the Word of God. We tend to skim over these portions of Scripture and rather focus on other important issues in the Bible. But Jesus' purpose is for us to love each other. The Apostle John understood this command, he understood this concept because right throughout his gospel and his epistles, he speaks about this special kind of love. Let me give you a few examples from John's first epistle. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, he says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning. What message? The message Jesus has been speaking to them about, that we should love one another. If you go to verse 16 in the same chapter, John writes, We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us, so we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7, John continues to write about this love and says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. We can't actually look at every time John mentions this because we'd have to read all five chapters because the entire epistle is written about loving each other. That's his message. Love one another, right? This is the command that you've heard. This is the message that you've heard from the beginning that you are to love your brothers and sisters. So church, the church at Philadelphia, why was Jesus so pleased with this church? Because they loved each other. They loved the brethren. They got this right. And you see, this is really one of the main purposes of the church's existence. Yes, we are to grow in our knowledge of God. Yes, we are to grow in spiritual maturity. Yes, we are to love God. That's obvious. But we can't love God without loving each other. That's how we express our love for God. And you know, church, when I was thinking about this, that's why the bait of Satan is for us to pick up an offense as Christians and for churches to fall apart so that this type of love isn't experienced to its full extent. The purpose of Jesus is for us to truly love each other for better or for worse, warts and all, right? Because he knows that a church that can maturely work through and deal with its petty insecurities, and listen, we all have them. But a church that can work through and, and deal with its petty insecurities is a church that will destroy the gates of hell that have been established on the earth. Amen. Amen? What did Jesus say about his church? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. A church that truly represents Jesus Christ is a church that loves each other. And it's a church that he's going to rapture when he returns. And look, I'm not just talking about loving people who belong to the church currently, like this church or, or the church globally, because that would sound a bit exclusive, right? 
I'm not just talking about the, the brethren in that sense. I'm talking about having the type of love that will empower you to have the same type of heart that Jesus had for those who are still to come to him. Those whom he has predestined before the foundation of the world. It says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And church, you know what that means? Among other things, that means that our love for the, uh, the brethren goes beyond our own four walls. It's the type of love expressed by people like John Wesley, who was willing to travel more than 400,000 kilometers on horseback to spread the gospel throughout Scotland and England. Or someone like Jonathan Edwards preached over 18,000 sermons to more than 10 million listeners. And this was before there was something called the internet or Facebook or YouTube. And yes, not everybody is called to be a, a preacher or an evangelist that will have this type of impact. We are all gifted differently, right? And all the parts of the body need to work together for the body to be effective. But you see, the type of love that Jesus is calling us to have is always bigger than ourselves. It always goes beyond ourselves and our own personal wants and desires and comforts, whatever that looks like. It reaches out beyond our own personal bubble or the bubble of people that we are so comfortable with and touches someone in a way that makes them feel recognized, it makes them feel worthy, it makes them feel the love of God through us. Amen? Church, it's also the type of love that doesn't pick up the fence, rather it drops the fence. So that barriers or differences can be worked out because there's a bigger purpose and mission at play. There's kingdom work to be done. The enemy would love for us to be fighting each other because he knows that a house divided cannot stand. The enemy's purpose is for us to get caught up on petty little issues when God's purpose is for us to love each other to the point of unity. And there's lots of guidance throughout Scripture on how we deal these things. If you've got something, you've got something against your brother, go to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. It'll clearly tell you how you should follow these steps through. The enemy would love for you to become offended so you leave this church, right? But you've got something special to bring to this church. And a church that works out their petty little issues is a church, let me tell you, that the gates of hell will not stand against. And you know, this is really a sermon all on its own, but I just wanted to bring some context to the type of love that Jesus commands us to have and commends here at the church at Philadelphia. Just a bit of a side note, by the way, when the Ottoman Empire overran Turkey and they turned it over to Islam, there was one city that held out right to the end above every other city in Turkey. Can you guess, can you guess uh, which city it was? It was Philadelphia. Philadelphia was the last Christian city that held out to the very end until Turkey had all of its Christians removed. They had that type of faithfulness. They loved each other. They were unified. They were faithful to the end. So let's look at what Jesus says to this church. Go with me to verse 7. 
He says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So firstly, why does, he, why does Jesus use those terms? Why does he say these are the words of him who is holy and true? You see, what happened in Philadelphia, as it was in every city-state in the Greco-Roman Empire, each city-state had its own deity. I've already mentioned a few of them during this, this series. Every city-state had at least one god that it seemed to bow to and worship. And as I mentioned earlier, Philadelphia's god was Dionysus, and Dionysus was the god of wine and revelry. And you've got to understand the context here. This church existed in a society that worshipped hedonism. What do I mean by that? It worshipped its own satisfaction through getting drunk and partying and having sexual orgies. There was an annual feast dedicated to this purpose. But Jesus comes along and reveals himself as holy. He reveals himself as one who keeps holy. And this church at Philadelphia didn't give in to the, the selfish lifestyles that were surrounding them because they understood what holiness was. Now, holy is a word that is represented all the way through Scripture. And it's also represented all the way through the book of Revelation. right? In fact, when we get to the throne room in chapter 4, what do the angels say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come, right? And church, holiness is something that we need to understand. Otherwise, we'll never understand what God is really after. He's after a pure bride. He's after a holy bride. He's after a bride that doesn't give in to the lifestyles that are surrounding them. Can I get an amen to that? But he doesn't just say holy. He says holy and true. And what does that mean? Church, holiness is always based on truth. You know, we are living in an age in the church where some people's experience of Christianity is not based on propositional truth. It's not based on biblical truth. It is based on experiential feelings, right? Which means what they are doing is that they're doing things that make them feel good. And they emphasize more the feeling that the Holy Spirit gives them rather than the truth in God's Word. Because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Jesus brings holiness and truth. Holiness has to be based on truth. You cannot live on an experiential theology. Yes, you are in a relationship with God and yes, you will experience it. But it is based on propositional truth, truth that Jesus came for you, Jesus died for you, Jesus rose from the grave for you, right? He's interceding for you and he's coming back for you. Propositional truth that can be proven. You cannot base your lifestyle as a Christian on your experience. It has to be true. And unfortunately, we've seen it all around us. When you go to some meetings or when you watch some services online and you can tell the emphasis is on feelings rather than the truth in God's word. It's even in some of the, the, the music that we listen to. 
You know, when it makes us feel good, you know, it makes it, it pumps us up because it's a, a vibey or a beaty song, but it's in no way based on propositional truth. And yes, we get the argument that some of it will, will at least attract the younger generation, right? And it's fine to listen to when you, you're exercising or you, you're singing in the shower, but you can't base your theology on some of that. And you know, church, when I was writing this and when I was reading through this, this really sounds like some old timer telling the younger generation to listen to decent music. <laughs> right? I know that it sounds like that, but let me just clarify this for you. I'm not an old timer. <laughs> I'm, I'm a middle ager, okay? <laughs> and I'm cautioning everyone, not just the younger generation, I'm cautioning everyone or encouraging, let me say that, rather encouraging everyone to listen to Christian music that builds your knowledge of God. Not just to make you feel good or make you dance or pump you up. And listen, we shouldn't ever become religious about something like this because where do you draw the line? We should just be aware of what's out there because not everything that is labeled Christian is Christian or holds to propositional truth. And when we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, there is great value in singing words that hold to these propositional truths. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Can I get an amen from the youth? Amen. It was, that was a bit quiet there, but that's okay. <laughs> Jesus is holy and true, but he also uses this phrase in verse 7. He says, He is the one who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now, church, it's interesting to note that there are over 800 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. Did you know that? So to understand what the key of David is, as referred to by Jesus in this verse, you have to look back to the Old Testament to find out what the key of David is. We're not going to have a lot of time to speak about this in detail, but in Isaiah chapter 22 and verses 20 to 22, we are told about the key of David. Long story short, in this part of the book of Isaiah, there are two people in the story. One was called Shebna, and one was called Eliakim. Shebna is a type of Antichrist, and Eliakim is a type of Christ. Now, Shebna held the keys to the city at that time, right? He was the ruler there, but he came under God's judgment, and God was now going to take away the keys and give them to Eliakim. And it says from verse 20, in that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to, the, uh, to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open." He quotes word for word who, who Jesus reveals himself as in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And what Jesus is doing here is revealing his authority and his power as the rightful heir to the throne of David. Amen? Interestingly, at some point, the Roman Catholic Church claimed that this means that the Pope has the keys. But that's not what it means. Because it's not about any man having the keys it's Jesus who has the keys, and importantly, this is important, he opens things through his authority, 
dependent on our relationship with Him. The church at Philadelphia really loved each other. They knew Jesus intimately. So he was showing himself as the one who had the keys of David and that he was going to open things that no one could shut and he was going to take them in through an open door. Now what's very interesting, church, is that the word door is mentioned in the rest of the chapter when Jesus speaks to the church at Laodicea and it's also mentioned in the first verse in chapter 4. And sometimes we can miss the importance of this. Because at the end of the church age, John saw something. And do you know what he saw? He saw an open door, or he saw a door standing open in heaven. And I don't think this is a different door, because it's only a few verses later. If we follow the pattern of the next couple of verses, I think that the door that God is opening for this church is the door to enter into heaven. If you have a quick look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what, show you what must take place after this. And church, what is this referring to? The rapture. This is the open door for the church that the Lord will take up into heaven. What's interesting is that when we look at the next church, the final church at Laodicea, there's another door mentioned there. But this time the door is closed. This time the door has been closed, but, but not by the Lord. They've closed the door. Because we get, well, as we're going to find out, Jesus is standing, knocking at the door, still given an opportunity for anyone to listen to him and come to repentance. Amen? But we'll look at that in a few weeks from now. So Jesus identifies himself to the church and that he has opened this door for this, this church. And then he lists the good things about this church. And just something interesting for you to, to take a guess this morning. How many good things do you think there were about this perfect church? Seven. Seven aspects, right? The number of perfection. The number seven in the Bible always refers to perfection, right? He says to them in verse 8, I know your deeds. As he said to the other churches, I know your true condition. You can't hide anything from me. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Same door, the door that's going into heaven. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. He commends them for having little strength. But church, importantly, that doesn't mean that they were weak. What that actually means is that they had real spiritual strength, but they were not too full of themselves. They realized that their strength came from God, and so he commends them. You guys are strong. You're spiritually strong here. right? The Apostle Paul speaks about this type of love in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and he says... That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, even though this literal church was going through severe persecution in the first century, and they were dealing with insults, with hardships and difficulties, 
Even though they may have felt weakened in that sense, they knew that their strength was in God. So the Lord commends them for this. And then he says, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And I really want you to, to, to press in a bit with me now as we start to close. You have you've kept my word and not denied my name. There are two aspects to this. Church, the first thing that's happening in a lot of churches today is that on the one hand, they are claiming to represent Jesus, but on the other hand, they are comfortable to deny certain parts of the Word of God. Not necessarily denying their faith in Jesus as Savior, they're just denying certain portions of Scripture. And they say things like, I don't believe that we should look to the Old Testament anymore for guidance. There's a group of people now that they're saying they actually want to unhitch the New Testament from the Old Testament because that's, that's the old way of doing things. That's the old covenant. Or they say things like that we shouldn't accept everything that Scripture says as truth because surely the Bible doesn't actually condemn that kind of behavior. We've evolved and, and we're evolving, so surely that doesn't apply in our day and age. But what they're actually doing is denying propositional truth. They are denying the Word of God as completely God-breathed and inspired by the Holy Spirit. The church at Philadelphia was going to be taken to heaven because they weren't denying His Word. A lot of churches will be open to the Holy Spirit. They'll claim that they love people, but they deny the fullness of Scripture. But here's the reality. If you deny His Word, you're denying Him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You can't deny the Word and still say that you believe in Jesus Christ. The second thing that's happening in a lot of churches today, and this is really sad, is that they say they are Christians, but they are denying the resurrection. They're denying the deity of Jesus. They're denying His name. Now, we know God has revealed himself with lots of different names all the way through the Bible, right? We know that. But I want to show you an interesting passage of Scripture in, in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4. This is a riddle that was written thousands of years ago. Have a look at what it says. It says, Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Whose hands have gathered up the wind? Who has wrapped up the waters in a cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is the name of his son? Surely you know. What is his name and what is the name of his son? Surely you know. You see, a lot of religions will acknowledge God, but they will not acknowledge his son. Right? We know that. We know that we can see that in different religions. But the really sad thing is that certain so-called churches and Christians are doing the same. I've mentioned this briefly last week, that at the end of the church age, there's going to be a liberal and progressive apostate church that denies the inherency of the Word of God, that denies the resurrection, that denies Jesus as the only way to salvation, and denies Scripture in general as the foundation of truth and morality. There's a general reference to God, right? Not a reference to Jesus, there's a general reference to God, but the problem with that is if you, that if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Savior. God sent His only begotten Son. 
You know, church, there are a lot of musicians and actors around today, even some Christian ones, who will thank God for their awards when they get them. But there's no reference to Jesus. I thank God for my talent. I thank Him for, for you know, for this, this great privilege. But no reference to Jesus Christ. And did you notice the ones that make reference to Jesus? Those are the ones that have been canceled. This church at Philadelphia knew who God was and they knew the name of his son. Jesus said, you have not denied my name. Remember the church at Sardis had a name that it was alive, but Jesus says, you're dead. So church, this is important. If you're not claiming the name of Jesus as your foundation for everything you believe in, no matter what you claim to be, or what special name you may have, if you're not claiming the name of Jesus as your foundation, Jesus says you're dead and your faith is meaningless. But this is not how he talks to the church at Philadelphia. And I'm going to stop here today. Right? We'll, we'll carry on next time, which means I guess there's going to be a part three to the church at Philadelphia. But before all those that are going to be baptized, before you get ready, I just want to leave you with this. I think this is a good place to pause as we get ready to go into this part of the service where we are going to baptize all of these people. And I say a good place to pause because for those who are going to be baptized this morning, if you weren't doing it in the name of Jesus, it would really just mean that you would be coming up here today, standing in front of all these people, getting yourself all wet and your hair all messed up for no real reason at all. But because this is actually a public confession of your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it means absolutely everything. It means absolutely everything. And I want to leave you with a passage of Scripture that speaks to this type of confession. In Acts chapter 8, an angel of the Lord tells Philip to go along a road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza and he finds an Ethiopian man of great authority there. And Philip hears this man, that this man's reading from the book of Isaiah. And it says from verse 30, Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. He says to him, Do you understand what you're reading? He says to Philip, How can I unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. It's a reference to a portion of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 53 that says, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at the scripture, preached Jesus to him. Not just, just general God in the in universe, he preached Jesus to him. Now as, when they, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And look what he answers and says. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And church, let that be our declaration. Let that be our confession in everything we do and everything we believe in as Christians. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Amen? Amen? And for those of you who are going to be baptized this morning, we're going to have a mic in the pool, right? And I'm firstly going to ask you just to state your name for everyone here today. And then I'm going to ask you, you know, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And then I'm going to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to do something different today. When you come up out of the water, I want you to declare that I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Can you do that? Can we do that this morning? For those of you who have been baptized, please go, go and get ready. We just have one or two announcements. We will have one worship song, and then we can get right into it. Can we thank God for His Word this morning, church?